Welcome to the Fulfilled Podcast. The podcast designed to spark fundraising inspiration for your nonprofit through thought-provoking interviews with world-leading fundraising experts. Fulfilled brings a unique interview style approach where we ask the most important questions of our expert guests to help nonprofits excel in their fundraising efforts. Feel inspired and feel fulfilled with knowledge so your nonprofit can continue to make a positive impact and create change for a better world. Hi everyone, Jake here from Fulfilled. Today I'm very excited to be talking to world-renowned fundraising speaker, trainer and strategist on fundraising copywriting and donor communications, Tom Ahern. In 2016, the New York Times wrote that Tom Ahern is one of the country's most sought-after creators of fundraising messages. And to go with that, Tom Ahern is also the author of eight popular fundraising books, including Turning Doubters into Donors, What Your Donors Want and Why, and How to Write Fundraising Materials and Raise More Money. Tom, welcome. Thanks, Jake. It's great to be in New Zealand. I wish I were there myself. You're summer, right? Uh, yes, we are summer. And um, yeah, firstly, thank you for coming on. But it is definitely, um, having recently moved back from Melbourne, it definitely seems far removed from the rest of the world when it comes to coronavirus. So I hope you're taking care of yourself over there. Oh, we never leave the house, basically. <laughs> Ah, uh, that's an it's a shame, but I I think I've got a few questions related to the current crisis in here. So it's yeah, I know you'd be doing it very tough over there, but um yeah, thank you again for coming on. So um to get started, uh, you began your career as a sales copywriter. So tell us about the beginning of your career and how this eventually led you to a career path in fundraising. Okay. <clears throat> well, uh, like a lot of people, my life changed when I got fired from a job. And I was working for a technology firm that had international contracts. And uh, I'd spent five years with them building up a marketing communications department. Um, then it was, you know, office politics or whatever, but I was let go with a very um, nice severance package because I was a senior person there. And uh, so I had really, I had a year paid for. And what I did for a year was I read. And uh, the reason I was reading is what I realized after, because I had been the manager of this the marketing communications group. Um, what I realized is that I'd been hiring people to do good work, but I didn't actually know how to do it myself. And so I, that's why I started reading. And after a year of reading how-to books, uh, you can pretty much learn to do anything. Uh, <laughs> so I, uh, I then um, started up a little advertising business with two other people. We did okay. We did well. We got national press and we started winning international awards and uh, that went on for about 10 years. And then um, one of our clients hired away my most important partner. And so the business, uh, I went independent at that point. I mean, we had plenty of business, um, but my wife has always been a consultant to nonprofits. She started uh, in, uh, in 1988. She had been the head of a, uh, the director of development for a theater group at that point. And um, 
she started asking, well, you know, you're trained in how to write direct mail. So could you write fundraising direct mail? And this, yeah, I, I guess. So I started reading again. And uh, after another, you know, half a year of reading every book I could get my hands on, I, uh, you know, I started doing it. And it was kind of a side um, hustle for a while, but um, became eventually the thing I did, fundraising. You, um, but what did you learn early on in your career um, to create impactful sales copywriting? And how is this different to creating impactful copy and fundraising? Um, it is not all that different. That's the thing, Jake. <laughs> what I had, um, you know, the, the original stuff I was selling uh, ranged from luxury yachts, uh, roof membranes for industrial buildings, uh, adult education. And, and that's probably the more sane stuff that I was working with. Um, and what you sort of learn on day one in the training to become a sales copywriter is the difference between features and benefits. And the other thing you learn is customer worship. Uh, because every sale is going to come from a target audience who decides in your favor for their own personal reasons. And really fundraising is no different than that, except, um, you know, if I buy something, I get something. Whereas if I give a gift, what am I getting from you people? And the answer um, was pretty much nothing. And that was, uh, that was a, um, it was a, both a revelation. Um, it was the basis of my training, um, career in fundraising. Uh, but it also was, um, it was, con it was confusing for a while. And you, you know your customer in, uh, sales, or you, you want to know them anyway. And you kind of, Anything you can find out about them, demographics, psychographics, why they behave the way they behave, what are they really looking for, um, things like that. You, you kind of play with that all the time. You're always thinking about your customer. And when you come into the nonprofit world, if you say to a fundraiser, well, if you say to a nonprofit, who's your customer, they immediately jump to the people they serve, of course. Um, if you say to a fundraiser, who's your customer, they don't really have an answer for the most part, or they didn't at the time when I entered. So the first few years of being heavily into fundraising stuff was kind of trying to figure that part out. It turned out that, um, in my view anyway, the customer was the donor. And that, um, that was around 2003, 2004. And at the same time, um, there were things being published like Penelope Burke's book about donor centricity, Adrian Sargent's uh, research and uh, so forth that looked at the donor through the same lens, that that donor was a customer. And the job of the charity was to provide um, emotional gratification, basically. Yeah, no, that's really well put. And can you recall a mistake that you made early on in your fundraising career, which actually turned out to be an important lesson on best practice? 
Well, um, it, it enti every career is built on a series of mistakes, right? Uh, up to a certain point, uh, you kind of, eventually you have made so many mistakes that there's nothing left to screw up. And so you, <laughs> plus you're learning. And if you're not learning, you'll continue to screw up. But um, yeah, I mean, there, was so, there were so many. Uh, one of which was very profitable is um, it was an acquisition campaign for something called a community foundation, which you have in uh, Australia, probably in New Zealand, in the UK, they exist, Canada, they exist. But in the United States, where they were originated, they're everywhere. And, you know, they're huge. And some of them are incredibly wealthy. And um, we, the a lot of community foundations, they spend a good amount of time chasing people in um, luxury automobiles. And uh, so we had a list and that list um, was purchased and it was supposed to be a wonderful list because all the people on the list were official millionaires at that time. Now it's uh, being a millionaire now is not all that uncommon in a first world country because that's kind of what a typical middle-class estate will uh, probate at when everybody dies. But back then it was, you know, in the 2000s, it was, okay, they, these are rich people and we want them on our house list because we're going to then send them stuff and cultivate them and invite them to special events to meet the governor and meet top scientists and all this other stuff we had to offer. And um, so we had our list and I wrote the appeal and they didn't change a word of it, which was uh, a gift and then later became a requirement for all new clients that they not change a word that we, that I wrote. And <laughs> I know it makes life so much easier. Um, for one thing, you're not trying to please your client because clients are not worth pleasing. They're not your target audience. Anyway, back to the millionaires. We had our list, we had our letter, we had our offer and we sent it out once and we got a certain amount of response. And, um, and it was good response actually for an acquisition appeal. And uh, then we said, hey, let's send it again about six, eight weeks later. And we got more response. We didn't change a word. And then we said, well, that worked. So let's do it again after a couple of months. We didn't change a word. And what we learned from that, which was very useful, was that probably pretty much most of the time, most people throw away most of their direct mail completely unread without making any decision at all. So you just, if the target audience is well is well selected and they are the right people just keep sending it okay, great well thank you for sharing that story um and <laughs> and what stands out is one of your more memorable fundraising success stories when working with a nonprofit, and what went into making this a success and why was it so successful a lot of my success is um is secondary in other words i train somebody um i ask them to get to come back to me in a year or whenever, you know, to let me know what the results were. And I, and quite a bit of this is just people will get in touch and I'll just quickly do an hour on the phone or something with them or touch up whatever they're working on. 
but you have to report back. And that whole reporting back has made a huge difference. I've noticed many consultants, I'll ask, well, how did it do? They said, well, I don't know. I never heard from the client. You know, it's like, no, you, know, you can't. If you're going to be an effective consultant, you really have to know what the results were because that's all that really matters. And um, so what I found, for instance, I, I ran across in an industry magazine in the United States a uh, case study of an extraordinary fundraising campaign done by a children's hospital. And I th thought, well, I've got to find out more about this. So I called them up and talked to them and I said, well, you know, how did you learn how to do this? It was their donor newsletter. It was suddenly making $50,000 per issue in donations. And they said, well, we took your workshop. <laughs> I said, wow, okay. So, so this stuff actually works. This is great. And, uh, and that was the beginning. That was, that was quite a long time ago. That was 2007. And um, then we became methodical about tracking results with people. So for instance, we now, um, we being myself, Jen Chang, who's a psychologist, Adrian Sargent, who's a, a professor of marketing, um, we teach master classes. And uh, part of the master class is you're paying a lot of money and we're going to make the promise that you can make twice as much in donations within 12 to 18 months. You have to report back to us so that we know whether we're lying or not. And, uh, and the results so far, uh, Jacob and great. Yeah. It's actually working. Wow. That's incredible to hear and well done to you, especially being able to prove what you're doing. That's incredible. And, and um, as said in the intro introduction, as well as being an internationally recognized fundraising communications expert in your field, you're also a trainer, guest speaker and author, and you've already covered some of those just then. But where do you find fundraisers commonly need your assistance the most? Well, here are the questions that came up today, just before, as I mentioned, um, you and I got together, I was doing an hour and a half webinar on cases, how to write a case for support. And one of the questions that came up at the end, which comes up at the end all the time, is um, how do I convince my program people to trust me? And the answer is, I have no idea because <laughs> they, you're all supposed to be on the same team. And frankly, if you're asking for their approval, you've already gone in the wrong direction. Uh, one of the things, you know, I mentioned, I have a, uh, ver what I call the verbatim rule, which is you basically, as a new client, agree that you won't change a word I write. Now, obviously, if I make a mistake and there's an inaccuracy, you change that. But what I don't want is for somebody who has no training to be judging the work uh, that required 30 years of training and is, is meant to be fail safe, is meant to have as many problems figured out in advance as I can think of. And, uh, and that, you know, I, the results have been great. Uh, for direct mail, for newsletters, even though sometimes, for instance, we're working on a newsletter for donors right now with a group that has about, I don't know, 300,000 donors in America. And they're, they're, what they do is collect money in America to help people in refugee camps around the world. 
right? So it's a UNHCR endeavor. And um, the first thing we did was, okay, pinky square with the um, executive director, you won't change a word. And she was like, you betcha. That's why we're hiring you. We put together a team. It was me and Jeff Brooks is on that team. And uh, there, there are about six people, three insiders, three outsiders, all working together on this one thing. And um, it, it was a money mill. I mean, it's just the old donor newsletter would just turn over riches. And we broke it. <laughs> the first issue we did brought in 77% of what it was supposed to bring in. So uh, part of the pinky swear with that group was you got to let us do four issues because it'll take that long for us to retrain the, the target audience to know what they're actually even looking at. You're also the author of some of the most popular fundraising books in the world. Um, for fundraisers watching this who are wanting to raise more money, as you said, through their direct mail appeals, which one of your books should they pick up first and why? Uh, the one with the puppy on the cover, um, it's got, it's hard to miss. Uh, it's the only one with a puppy on the cover. And, and it's kind of the, um, it was a second edition of my earliest um, kind of general purpose donor communications book. So it's been updated. I, the first one did very well in terms of sales and, but it, you know, it, it was 10 years out of date. And it, the entire digital you know, shift to integrated communications with digital and print together uh, had happened in the meantime. So, you know, we had to basically start over. On direct mail, what mistakes are you seeing fundraisers making in this area and what tips can you share with them to improve? Yeah, um, okay. Well, the most common mistake I see, and I see it a lot, and I correct it immediately, um, is they open the letter, dear, you know, Jake, and then they give you a five line deep paragraph as the opening salvo. And, um, and that won't work because you can't skim it. You're, it's kind of a roadblock. So one of the things we teach, there's a copywriting course I teach for the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy, which is Jen Shang and so forth. Um, we, one of the principles we teach is that everything you put in front of me is either a welcome mat or a barrier. So if the first thing you put in front of me after Dear Jake is a five line deep paragraph, that's a barrier. It's not a welcome mat. If it is a one line paragraph surrounded by white space, six words or less, that's a welcome mat. So, you know, one of the things you're looking at with all communications like this, digital or print, is what is the visual uh, dimension of it? You know, can I skim it? If you can't skim it, it's dead. So it needs to be reorganized. It doesn't necessarily have to be rewritten. It just needs white space added in. It needs to be chunked down into smaller pieces, so forth. Great. And in your book, uh, What Your Donors Want and Why, you discuss um, how to organize communications around one key metric, and that's lifetime value. So explain how this is achieved and why it's so important. 
Yeah, lifetime value, I learned from Adrian Sargent, the marketing professor. And Adrian, you know, he's a university professor of marketing who specialized in fundraising. So he was a classically trained marketing professor who happened to, you know, use this as his specialty. And what he learned from, again, like me, I came out of the commercial world. You learn how not to fail because you you won't have a job if you do fail. You get fired, right, if you don't make sales. So what Adrian saw were in the, in the commercial world that he studied was that lifetime value was the key metric for um, consumer firms. So um, and it, he talks about this a lot. Basically, you, what you want are a lot of people that keep buying over and over and over and over, depending on what you're selling. Well, fundraisers would love the same thing, but they, they, their results are actually pretty, pretty lousy. Um, people make one-time gifts or peer-to-peer -peer fundraising. Let's look at peer-to-peer -peer fundraising. Peer-to-peer -peer fundraising has built into it the idea that you will make a gift to your friend and it isn't a gift to that cause. It is to your friend. And that's a dead end. Unless somehow your friend turns around and says, will you join me in becoming a regular supporter, let's say, of this cause? Because it's a wonderful cause. You really should do it. Well, you know, a few people will respond to that. But in, in um, the United States, for instance, is a there's a cause called Charity Water. And as you can guess from the name, they drill wells. And uh, actually, they pay other NGOs to drill wells. But they are a fundraising operation. They're based in New York City. They are remarkably successful. They came out of nowhere and within 15 years were one of the most well-known brands, fundraising brands in America. Uh, what they found though, the way they did it is they would have people donating their birthday or an anniversary or some date of note. And instead of sending us gifts, send us, I mean, presents, we're going to collect money for charity water. And it was all one and done. And they never, they, they, they had almost no retention at all. And they finally said after five or six years, this is an unsustainable financial model. We're going to run out of people who care. So we have to switch to heavy, uh, what you guys call regular giving. And in the United States, we call it monthly giving. And, uh, and that's what they're doing. And now 95% of their donors are monthly. And that's you know, that was a concerted effort on their part. And, you know, peer-to-peer -peer is a wonderful thing, uh, but be careful what you're going to be filling your database up with. If it is people that really have no reason to give to you for a second time, uh, that's, you know, <laughs> it's misleading. <laughs> that's incredible. And yeah, Charity Water, even on this side of the world, is known for their remarkable fundraising efforts and the work that they do. And um, a lot of your success has been due to the amount of research, what you've said. Um, and you, you've studied a lot into the psychology and neuroscience uh, behind loyal donors. What has this research taught you about donor behavior? First of all, understand why I rely on research. It is because I got tired of being second guessed by clients. 
And so, you know, I do all this reading, I do this reading, I do this reading, I read all the time, every day. And I, then you'd go in and say, and here's what I propose. And they'd say, yeah, but I don't like that, you know? And it was like, well, then, yeah, we're not gonna get along. And it got worse with fundraising because the nonprofit world is full, full of people in positions of power who have no training. And um, in in our world, like donor communications, and they're they're like judging it, you know, off the top of their head. So the research is there as a barrier to them. It's there to say you don't know what you're talking about. I do. Let me do what I think is right, and uh, that's how it really gets started. And um, you know, and then it became its own kind of sub industry with. Uh, making sure people report back to you what their results were. You look at what they did. You you call them up and interview them, and you get the deeper detail. You know, I talk to a lot of fundraisers, and I get the inside story of what they did, and the the good, the bad, and the ugly. And frankly, you can get this on Sophie now, which is a great you know, asset for our industry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, spend a lot of time on Sophie. It's a great website, and <laughs> so do I. and it's <laughs> and it's often uh, an area overlooked. But how can fundraisers be planning for a stronger retention strategy through their channels and communications with donors? What tips can you share there? Well, stronger retention. I, one of the uh, bottom line principles that the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy came up with was simply: if you like them, they'll like you back. So if you like your donors and you treat them wonderfully and surprise them and delight them, and the same things you do in a consumer customer service experience, you are going to see your income rise steadily rather than decline steadily. And the other thing you have to do is continuously bring to them a sense of purpose. So one of the great uh, case studies, and it's not on Sophie, um, unfortunately. Ken Burnett uh, wrote this up, and he was reporting on some research by a guy named Alan Clayton, whom I'm sure you know. And uh, Alan was working with a, an animal welfare charity in the UK. And what was happening was that over the over, year after year, they were losing donors. So their retention, even though it was a wonderful charity, they did all the work and, you know, it was fabulous. They had the cute puppies and kittens and all the rest of it. They had nothing, they weren't doing anything wrong, but what they had not noticed until they went back and reviewed uh, years of direct mail was that when they talked about human cruelty to animals, giving went up. And when they talked about adopting animals, giving sank. Now, it wasn't everybody wanted the animals to have happy lives. They wanted happy endings. They just weren't going to give money to it because what they were really fighting was human cruelty. That's the fight they were in. So if you don't know what fight you're in, you're going to start to lose your donors. 
No, that's a really way, uh, great way of putting it. And you mentioned it earlier um, around updating your book because of a big shift to digital, uh, which is now more apparent um, in the age of COVID. So what is digital's role in a donor-centered fundraising strategy today? Digital's role, it's just another channel. I mean, it, it is not special. The language, it, it, well, it is, it isn't. I mean, it, it, the print medium is a little more uh, sedate, you know, a little more studious than uh, the digital medium. The online environment is uh, click oriented. So it's action oriented. And, and you, you see this when you look at um, people in laboratories encountering new uh, websites, for instance, and testing them for usability, they'll, they'll click on anything. They won't read it. If it said, you, you will be electrocuted if you hit this button, they'd all still hit the button just to see what would happen. And that's the environment you have to work in. So you've got to, first of all, be really quick. And the lingering, you know, we're going to talk about ourselves for a while, and then maybe you'll, you know, buy into this mission. Can't do it anymore. Our attention spans have been utterly shattered. Would you say the same goes for social media? Um, I mean, is there anything you advise? It's one of the villains. You know, two things happen, Jake, um, and they both happened around the same time. Uh, 2006, 2007, um, Facebook started to become an international phenomenon around that time. And it was introduced at Harvard and then it jumped to another university or, and then it got bigger and then it went public and then it went global. And suddenly there were billions of people using that particular social media. Uh, that introduced everybody to the habit. And then in 2007, uh, Apple introduced the smartphone, the iPhone, and that became a runaway bestseller. And <laughs> suddenly you've got these two things yapping at you all the time and you could spend your entire day on social media or walking down the street looking at the palm of your hand and getting run over by a bus it is not possible to go backwards on that it, it, it's everybody's now trained in new behaviors yeah that's right and how can nonprofits better, better utilize their websites to raise money after as you've just said with all the clicking that goes on what what should they be doing to maximize this well, it's interesting. Right now in the course that we teach on uh, copywriting fundraising, um, copywriting using phil philanthropic psychology. Uh, this week, it's a four-week course. This week, we asked people to evaluate their own websites, so their own organization's websites, and to be really ruthless. I mean, to be absolutely unforgiving um, you know, to, to take that, like that rule, everything is either a welcome mat or a barrier and apply it to every bloody thing on that screen. And, you know, there could be on a busy site with multiple audiences, uh, you can have above the fold, you can have a dozen different things to click on. So each thing that's there is going, look at me, 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 click me, click me, click me. And uh, you've, you know, if you're trying to raise money, you somehow not only have to survive that, you have to dominate that environment. <laughs> and a donate button isn't going to do it. <laughs> a 
a donate button is not enough anymore because you know like uh, everybody has one which means it's a cliche and trite and you know it's not fun it's not interesting so you got to turn it into an experience and uh, you'll, you'll see now uh, the latest generation of websites seem to be much simpler you know very you know there isn't a lot of shouting necessarily going on um, and what one message that is often uh, missed by charities is that I didn't know they were a charity I mean there's a donate button sure but everybody has one of those if you're a nonprofit and so one of the first things I do with my students or with my new clients is I go and I look at their financials. In the United States, they have to file something called a 990 with the tax people. And so I can look at their actual revenue streams on that 990, which they're legally obliged to file. Or I can go to an annual report where they you know, typically show financials. And uh, what I'm looking for is how, big a chunk of your annual financial income is thanks to some form of donations. And, you know, with some causes, it's almost nothing because they're funded by government, maybe. Um, other, or insurance um, reimbursements. Uh, but a lot of causes, you'd never know it. And yet, like 60% of their income is donations. You'd never know it. If that isn't clear on the homepage, <laughs> then you've already blown your best opportunity because those first few seconds of my encounter with your site are going to pretty much say everything I'm ever going to know about you. Yeah, you don't want to blow the opportunity. People come and go very quickly, but it does become a bit tricky when there's so many different teams to who want to utilize the website. Um, but just quickly, as um, on the on the digital front as well, I mean, how should content be different for email marketing, say, compared to direct mail pieces sent to the donor's letterbox? Different. Let's talk. The what's usually not interesting is that the entertainment value of whatever the prose is, whether it's digital or print, is low. I don't, you know, it's not entertaining me. Now, it doesn't have to entertain me with juggling and monkeys and things like that, but it, it does have to keep me going, oh, 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 I didn't know that. Oh, that's surprising. Oh, isn't that wonderful? That's so different than I expected. If you continue to do that, this is why four-page letters written by professionals work better in direct mail than one-page letters, because they're, for four pages, they are working it really hard to entertain me and tell me what a wonderful person I am. I'll take that for four pages. And it's better than one page of being told I'm wonderful. So um, on the digital side, well, it's a much faster environment. People, they're, they're just eager to do something. Give me something to do. So, you know, I mean, you deal with that, but basically it's again, how are you entertaining me? The purpose of donor communications, print or digital, has one purpose, one purpose, and that is to make me feel good. And that's all there is. Everything else is a byproduct of that. If you want a gift from me, you make me feel good. Well, okay, I'll consider that. 
Yeah, great. And um, yeah, well, we've just got some quick fire questions uh, to get through because, um, yeah, you're a man of many talents. You cover a lot of areas, but uh, we're just going to some quick fire question round now. And um, another area where you've had a lot of success is through your communications and bequest marketing. So how can fundraisers be better in this area? Okay. The, the, the basic thing in bequest marketing is it is ba- you're talking to the people who are already um, have already shown that they care about you. So they're frequent donors, maybe uh, have been giving for years. They, they may stop because they retire and go on a fixed income or something, but they, they do care. And uh, you send them one letter a year extra that says, uh, by the way, uh, if you're updating your will, would you please consider putting a gift in it for this favorite charity? And thank you very much for all of your support. And that you have to do that <laughs> and most, causes you know i mean it, it's a it's what's called the drip method of advertising you know the the message is there it's always there it's always drip drip dripping but if you don't reach out and say oh by the way and actually be active about it you're just not going to get as much as you would yeah and why is mid-level giving so important right now well it's, it's where smaller um, initial donors go and then it's where major donors come from. So it's kind of, uh, you know, I mean, yes, somebody might come in and give you a million dollar gift right away because they just think it's a wonderful thing you're doing, but mostly not. Mostly people kind of move up this, you know, they start with a, um, what they consider a modest gift and that varies. If somebody comes in with a $150, $250 gift, I'm not sure what the exchange rate is with New Zealand, but um, that is actually a strong indicator that they could be one day a major donor because most people start in the United States anyway with an initial gift of let's say $25 to $40. That's a normal initial gift. So anything above that is an indication that they're particularly interested and have means. That's right. It's right there in the middle where a lot of focus needs to be to just keep pushing them through the funnel. Um, So where should the focus be for fundraising right now during COVID-19? Well, one thing is don't get, you know, don't assume in the early days of the pandemic, there was a lot of, you know, the skies falling um, behavior and opinion. And uh, a lot of charities would stop trying to raise money because, oh, we shouldn't ask people at this time. Well, it proved after a few months when we started to see some results coming in that in fact, the behavior, and a lot of this was um, researched by Mark Phillips over at Blue Frog in London. It turned out that people who were still financially stable, they had not lost their means of living, um, were not just giving to their existing charities, the ones they already liked, they were giving more uh, in total, giving to, um, you know, basic needs charities like hunger, uh, housing, and that sort of thing. Um, Can you, you've already shared the example of Charity Water, uh, but I'll still ask it anyway. Can you share an example of a nonprofit doing excellent fundraising right now? And what is it that they're doing so well? Which size do you want? Or surprise me. (laughs) Okay, I'll go with small because so many, you know, I mean, that's the biggest, as a percentage of our industry, it's mostly small to medium, let's say up to 10 million a year. 
which for a lot of organizations, that would be an enormous amount of money. Um, but my favorite is, uh, and these are, I, I give to causes, I mean, I give to a lot of causes because of inertia. Those would be monthly giving and you sort of, it's more trouble to get out of it than to continue until your card expires. But the ones that I actively um, give to include something called Vita Hoven, which is spelled J-O-V-E-N. It's pronounced Hoven though, because it's Spanish. It's in Tijuana, Mexico. It's an orphanage. And the, the, the thing to know about Tijuana is it is the murder capital of the world right now, right? And you're an orphan on the streets and I'm talking five, six, seven years old. What happens is they get into Vitahoven, they get you know brought in, they get fed, they get medicated, they get educated, they get uh, safe housing, um, plenty of you know love and these kids are so traumatized and uh, it's been around for about 30 years and eventually it turns out most of them go to college now can you imagine what better story arc there could be that I was an orphan on the streets of Tijuana everybody's you know kicking me like a soccer ball and now I'm going to college and it's almost entirely supported by donations. And uh, that none of that is the punchline. The punchline is that they practice almost irresponsible levels of donor love. They're so huggy that you sort of go, mm, <laughs> and it's wonderful. It's wonderful to be on the receiving end of their donor communications. It's incredible. I might have to look them up after this. Haven't heard of them before. So, But um, when you look back at your career, what stands out as one of your greatest achievements to date and why is this so important to you? I don't, uh, I don't honestly know how to answer that. I mean, I've won plenty of awards. Some of them are big awards. Uh, and that was when I was in the commercial side of things. So I'm proud of that. It means I, I had learned my trade. And that's all this is, is a trade. Uh, you know, but now working for good causes, I mean, that's, that's a pleasure in itself. The people, I, you know, we don't work for the people we don't like, for instance. Uh, and um, there are plenty of them around and they do good fundraising too. And I learned from those people, conservative groups and so forth, but I'm not, like that personally so you get you know you get to work with the people you want to work with and um and you try to do something special for them you know like break their newsletter <laughs> we we have three more issues to go we'll bring it back i promise or or i'll what i did with that jake is uh when the first issue underperformed in terms of revenue you know, we had lots of meetings about why that probably happened. Uh, it, we shouldn't have sent it during the presidential election week, you know, things like that. Um, but I stopped billing them for my time. I, I record the time and it, it's building up. But if we don't turn that newsletter around, they will not get a bill from me. 
Yeah, that's a very generous offer and that's incredible. And, and you've achieved so many great things in the profession in both, you know, both the profit and nonprofit world. But what are you next striving for in the fundraising profession? Well, for one thing, I'm quite old. And the uh, one of the things I've, uh, we talked about, my wife and I, Saman, uh, when we were in our 50s was, okay, um, we're going to age out of our market. People will want to hire people that look like them, and we're not going to look like them. We're going to look like the grandparents eventually. And so uh, what, what can you do to uh, maintain an income uh, given that fact of life? And uh, the answer was you become some kind of authority. And that's why I got into books and training and lecturing and stuff like that. Because if you're an author, you're officially an authority. So now I, you know, it's like, okay, fine. Um, but what do I want to do next? Well, one of the, one of the workshops I developed this past year um, and it's been a great year for developing new stuff because everything's online. It's all virtual. You have to deal with that. Um, and it's just put different parameters on it. Uh, one of the things I offer now is um, how to talk to someone my age about, mar about charitable bequests. And what I can do now as a, a person of a certain age, and um, we're also major donors, uh, to be honest, uh, is I can talk to you frankly about what's up here. <laughs> and I'm, I'm gonna talk to you as frankly about what's up here as I did about your lousy communications. And, you know, and am I representative of anything other than myself? No, not really, although I'm also not uninformed. But, uh, you know, so I, I'm, I'm on a truth, I'm on a truth, you know, kind of brigade here. This is what people who are most of your donor base, because in the United States, uh, two thirds of the donor base is 55 and older. And people, you know, they just, they don't know, they, they don't want to make a mistake. They don't want to insult me. They don't want to, you know, insult anyone. They're afraid of, that's probably the number one thing they're afraid of is whatever you do, don't, don't piss somebody off. Um, and, and what it leads to is blandness, not boldness. And boldness is going to be much more effective in sales. So I'm trying to make, I'm trying to loosen them up. Look, I'm old. Yeah, I know I'm going to die. Everybody, so are you. Hey, just won't, it won't be recent. It won't be soon, probably, except in shark-infested waters, of course. No, I think that's a really, really nice way of putting it. Be bold. Um, and as you say, I, I'm, I look forward to watching from the sidelines to see how everything goes for both you and Simon over the next couple of years as well. But um we are down to the final question, and I just want to say, Tom, thank you so much for coming on for Phil today. Thanks, Jake. It's fun. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I can pass it on to a few other people. <laughs> but uh, what's your final piece of advice to inspire and fulfill fundraisers to make a positive impact and create change for a better world? The final piece of advice I have, because, and it's based on the question I get asked most often, is... Uh, don't ask for forgiveness, not for approval. 
most of the delay, most of the money left on the table is my boss won't let me do this. And then the question becomes, well, why they hired you to be the fundraising professional. Why aren't they, why do they doubt you? Why do they not trust you? And it, and it gets more complicated than that. But the truth is, your job is to make money. Make money. Your job isn't to please your boss. So, you know, try stuff. I mean, one of the best fundraisers I know, a woman named Shoni Field, who is with the British Columbia SPCA, puts aside 5% of her budget, um, her fundraising budget, her communications budget, every year to try stuff she hasn't tried before, knowing that it could fail and knowing that that 5% of her budget might be totally blown away and not of any use at all. And, but it is her annual investment. And I got to tell you, what happens is exactly the opposite, is she's making money hand over fist because she's trying stuff all the time. 